HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Aaron Fairbanks, co-founder of Grout Consulting, creator of Be Kind, Be Fierce, which focuses on leadership development, enhancing communication, fostering social change. She was also the first executive director of our own Heritage Radio Network. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Erin about how she makes change happen, get a report card on Me Too and food, and in our last segment, as always, we'll hear Erin's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was generally uncomfortable being branded a feminist. While she never really explained her reluctance, maybe it was generational, maybe it was that she wanted to be recognized for what she achieved without gender bias, we really don't know. Julia's success was driven by her own motivation and profound interest in food coupled with her force of personality, and that while cultivated, was also innate. Although it's true she didn't do it alone, other people like her husband Paul and her longtime editor Judith Jones were certainly key to her success. It was Julia who definitely led the charge. She was just one of those people who believed in doing things well and doing them for the benefit of humankind. Erin Fairbanks, someone cut from the same cloth, although she wears her feminist badge proudly. 
We first met Erin when she was the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. And honestly, this podcast would not exist without her gentle prodding and clear direction. More recently, we've been delighted to welcome her as a new member of the Foundation's Advisory Council. As she has her finger on the pulse of so many things going on in the food world, and in the spirit of this podcast, we wanted to share her wisdom and exciting new adventures with all of you. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Wow, Todd. Thank you. I'm so flattered by all those associations. It's great to be here. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here and get into the conversation. So as I said, you know, there are not many people who forged, I think, as many new frontiers as, as you. So whether it's helping launch a podcast network devoted to food, organizing women to work together to support each other's leadership development, or coaching social entrepreneurs. So you really seem to like starting and forgive the food pun growing new things. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? You know, I, I, I am the oldest of six. Um, so I grew up in a very rural part at the, the top of the lower peninsula in, in Northern Michigan. And actually kind of reflecting on this conversation, I've had some conversations with my mom recently um, trying to kind of match up how I remember myself as a kid and kind of her remembrance of me. And it was interesting to uh, hear from her that my like thrust towards kind of organizing and agenda setting um, seems to be like somewhat uh, innate, but I would assume also built out of the necessity of maybe the you know, chaos of so many kids in my childhood. I think I was always drawn to um, organizing. My mom tells like stories of me, you know, at birthday parties or before family events, kind of assigning different tasks to my siblings or cousins or occasionally even the adults. I think there was something about um, a drive to bring order and and to kind of help things run smoothly and maybe bring a sense of kind of calm or purpose that maybe I was craving as a kid that's always just been part of my part of my approach I think you know uh taken to its extreme I have a tendency to be almost compulsively unable to kind of let a thing slide you know as an employee I think that makes me um kind of a good catch if something of a pain in the ass, because I, you know, if I notice an opportunity or a thing that doesn't quite make sense, I, I, you know, my brain just latches onto that pretty ferociously. And I have, um, this desire to kind of fix it or set it straight or build a new system around it. And that, um, you know, over time, I think, uh, you know, personally, I've had to do some real work to, remind myself that they're not like all my, my things to fix and that to, uh, you know, pick and choose, um, makes me feel like calmer as an individual, but also more, more productive. I think that's those things as you kind of come into a little bit, um, more of yourself or your age, I think the realization that you're as much defined by what you say no to as what you say yes to. So I feel like recently in particular, I'm really trying to focus on, um, you know, saying yes and no to, to the right things. And, and, uh, I was just, it was like literally, I think last night was reading 
a, you know, a, a Steve Job quote that was, you know, kind of really talking about focus and like, how do you attain focus? And he's like, focus is about saying no. So even though like no feels like this kind of like negative shutting down tool, I'm really trying to, to reframe it as like an opportunity to deepen my like experience and engagement in, in the stuff that feels most kind of salient to me right now. Well, I feel lucky that you said yes when the foundation came asking if you would uh, join our <laughs> advisory council. But oh, I think man. that's I think that's interesting. What you what you said though is you just described a, a lot of things that make sense, but none of that touches on why you've done different things and why you've started over and tried to build things. Because anybody can join IBM and be in a leadership role and stay there for thirty years. So, w- what do you think that that added sort of desire to build and then maybe move on or maybe that's going to change? Uh, you know, I get a lot of energy just uh, from from curiosity. So I have a tendency to like to kind of jump in the deep end and kind of like problem solve and figure things out. And I think to a certain extent when I feel like I've attained uh, a level of mastery that feels like personally satisfying – then I am happy to kind of move on to the next thing. Um, you know, I would I would thinking in particular about, you know, the radio network and and it was when I when I started um, back in uh, 2012. You know, there was this really wonderful kind of kernel of an organization, and it was very exciting to be able to come in and envision uh, the directions it could take and really work with uh, Jack and Patrick and, and later Allison and the team here to, to really shape that. Um, but what I realized after I had, you know, about five years under my belt is that my, my skill set in, in kind of bringing uh, resources to the organization was maybe not the best matched with like what the organization needed at the time. And, um, you know, on, on one hand, I think I was unwilling to kind of shift into um, kind of managing and, and shepherding the kind of early adolescence of the organization felt less exciting to me. Um, you know, I think just my energies are are more aligned with that kind of the, the creativity and innovation that happens in in the newness. And I'm not as, as strong in the kind of maintenance and kind of mid-range growth, which is, I think, what was so exciting about meeting uh, Katie Mosman-Wadler, who is the current executive director, is that she brought this like incredible uh, skill set of, of being really aligned in that kind of ongoing management and this kind of slow and steady and really thoughtful growth, where I feel like my energies are often I don't know, like, like louder and, and larger. And I have a harder time in that kind of middle space. So it's not that I like necessarily like completely lose interest, but there's a certain amount of like, okay, I get that. And, and oftentimes I feel like I've pursued different activities or jobs or skill sets because I wanted to be able at some like magical future point, be able to manage someone or lead someone, um, and I feel like firsthand experience is is just such a valuable 
resource. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll just go and get some of that, you know, and, and some of that's like born out of just being naive. I mean, I moved to New York kind of on a lark in my early twenties. And my idea at the time was, all right, I'm going to cook for a year and be a master chef and then work on a farm for a year and know everything about farming. And then I'll do some kind of like advocacy or nonprofit work. And then I'll kind of know what I want to do. Um, and of course, you don't have to spend much time in a professional kitchen to know that you're not going to be a master chef in a year. I was a master saran wrapper. I will take that <laughs> title. Uh, you know, after about two months, I was pretty great at glass wrapping. But um, well, you know, it, sound, it sounds like you just the one thing in, you have yeah. you have learned and you bring to the table is a, is an awareness of your strengths and weaknesses and knowing yourself and knowing what you contribute and what you don't, which I think takes a lot of people a long time to really realize. So the, the fact that you're there says a lot. And the fact that you knew when it was time to hand over the reins to a successor is, is I think, to Heritage's benefit. Well, yeah, and comes from a place of, you know, deep love and care for the organization that I had, you know, had the, the honor of stewarding for a period and then thinking back on kind of other projects. Um, I think you know, learning to be part of building something that can go on in your absence to be like more successful and more vibrant um, is 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 kind of like the highest goal I can I can think of is like setting something on a t- trajectory to kind of grow beyond my like wildest expectations. So. I don't know. Wow. It's well, let's talk about the trajectory in a different direction because I'm I'm really fascinated by a lot of the things you're doing, and um, since I know there's a lot of mansplaining going on in the world, I thought we'd do some women's planning. <laughs> um, so, your women's leadership development group, Be Kind, Be Fierce, offers, and I'm quoting your own description, safe spaces where women can open up and connect. It also often says, "No boys allowed." Um, And so at the risk of asking the obvious, I still think it's worth going into why do women need that kind of safe space to connect? And and what do you think the group achieves in providing it? Um, I, you know, I came to my, um, I came to the embracing of my kind of personal uh, feminist journey kind of late in the game. I think I really grew up in the kind of girl power nineties and was surrounded by, you know, people. And I think a lot of media at the time that was in many explicit ways saying like, you know, you can do it and girls rule and you can be anything you want. And, and you're getting those like verbal messages or messages on, you know, the posters at school. And, um, I really just believed that, And it took me a long time, I think, to take a step back and even recognize the way in which my my gender was impacting opportunities and and how people related to me and being able to even, I think, just have uh, the ability to see the way that, um, you know, there is like a systematic infrastructure that really perpetuates gender stereotypes that I think don't serve women and don't serve men. And um, I never, outside of kind of athletic teams, spent much time in all female environments and literally just had like a group of people over for dinner. And it randomly happened to be all women. And it felt um, different. You know, it felt uh, exciting. It felt safe. It felt like 
we were able to kind of unveil um, one level of performance that I think people, you know, you walk around um, in the space of your public self and you're kind of making choices about how to present yourself. And I think being in an all-female environment, um, operating outside of the male gaze, you have fewer things that you need to focus on or pay attention to because some of the, you know, uh, energy that that just shows up intentionally or not um, when when you're in the company of men um, goes away. And I just I found personally that to be incredibly um, exciting and invigorating and and in many ways like foreign to myself. I was, you know, really in my early 30s at this point and I thought that this kind of space might be something that other people might enjoy. And so over the course of the last couple of years hosting these kind of regular convenings that were all female, I really saw that kind of come to be. And I remember in particular uh, early on we had hosted uh, an event at a friend's apartment and there was probably 30 women in the room. And towards the end of the event, her uh, boyfriend came back uh, with a couple of his friends. And it was uh, perceptible the moment this kind of group of like totally lovely men walked in the door, the uh, volume of the room changed, the kind of uh, tone and tenor of voices changed. And even just looking around, I felt like there were posture adjustments that were happening. And I don't think had I walked up to anyone in that space and said, like, hey, why are you, like, standing and talking differently than you were five minutes ago, that they would even have necessarily recognized what I was talking about. So, and, and do you know, think Do you think it's important. that women, women act differently when men are there or that men's behavior puts women in a, in, a, in a position where they feel they have to act differently? Is it sort of an instinctive thing or is it something that women have been taught? Yes. <laughs> yes, all of, all of the above and all different kinds of com- combinations. And I don't, you know, I think the desire to like um, say it's specifically one thing or the other is is not quite right. I think it's it's all of those pieces and it's different for different women and it's different for different men and it's different in different environments. And it's not to say by any means that, um, you know, women can't or aren't themselves in the company of men. I mean, I think that is, is, is totally untrue. Um, I just think there's like something, um, you know, there's like something kind of like magical and special about it. Um, in the same way, I feel like, uh, any group that, uh, has, uh, something in common when they get together, there is, um, a specialness to that, that just, um, that just emerges. I mean, I feel like given, um, the current climate, you know, thinking specifically about Me Too, I will say there is an, incre- you know, increasing feeling of or both urgency and um, need for some of these spaces that feel a little safer where there's maybe some more kind of built-in understanding. I've been thinking a lot, of, you know, in particular, just kind of operating as a person moving around under the current administration, I feel like there's this sack of just like of junk, you know, that we're kind of all carrying around. That is the kind of presence of the Trump administration that just shows up 
in your in your life in your day in this way that is kind of constantly bewildering but not constantly at the top of mind it's just like a little uh extra weight that we're carrying and and so yeah well certainly all the images whatever your political persuasion it's pretty factual that the general photos are older white men in ties in the in a room and that's who's in the decision-making position but before before we get into Me Too, I thought maybe we'd go about some positivity in terms of an example or two of what you sort of seen come out of, um, you know, either a specific Be Kind, Be Fierce event or what people who've participated in them have told you that they've gotten out of these kind of women-only environments. Yeah, I'm happy to share those. Uh, um, I think it really runs the gamut, you know, um, I feel like there's something important. So, you know, for folks who aren't familiar, um, you know, these events uh, that I call Ladies Night, which I don't think is a great name, but it was like the most obvious thing at the time and has kind of stuck, um, are are nothing more than um, kind of roughly monthly get togethers um, in female owned or operated spaces where um, for around three hours, women come together, some for half an hour of it, some for all three hours of it. And there's no programming, you know, there's no talks or speakers or panels. It's, it's literally just a room full of ladies talking. And, and we've really set a tone in that space um, that is very welcoming and warm. So if you walk up to the edge of a group of people talking, there's a very natural opening of that circle and introduction and welcoming in. And so I think um, that, is, that uh, at its very basic level, people get um, a, a little bit of just uh, nourishment and refreshment um, and, and relaxation from just attending. But more specifically, people have, um, you know, developed new friendships. They have hired each other for work projects. They have... Um, literally launched, um, you know, businesses as a result of relationships that have been kind of birthed through those types of introductions. Um, and what's cool is I feel like women in particular have this really neat internal kind of divining rod or honing device that you show up that evening and you're able to find whatever it is that you might need right now in, in a somewhat of an immediate way. And I think that really runs the gamut. I think a lot about all the different um, roles that we play in our life as professionals, as daughters, as mothers, as friends, as children. And uh, it's cool to to be in a space where all of those all of those um, things can can come up. So even just kind of getting advice on um, how to handle going through a divorce or challenges with childcare or um, techniques for coping with uh, dealing with aging parents. Um, I would say the um, space is very kind of ripe for exchange and that exchange happens um, in, in like such a wide kind of multitude of ways. And that's, I think, the thing that I always feel the most um, delighted by is just like taking in a moment with standing in the middle of this event and seeing all this kind of like action around me and these people chatting and like, uh, you know, hands moving and like heads nodding and cards being exchanged. And there's just like an energy that then I think once the event is over kind of lives on, um, as I said, as friendships, as businesses, as, you know, just a good, 
a good feeling for a while that kind of puts some, you know, gas in the tank for the other stuff that's going on. Well, that that's a great, a great way to um, take a break on that high note of positive energy. And then we'll come back and, and talk to Erin more about where she thinks we're at with the Me Too movement, I guess we'll call it in the food world. We'll be right back after this break. Too often, people think of Julia's mastering the art of French cooking as having only difficult recipes, when that's not the case. Take, for example, the recipes for five French cakes, which can be prepared pretty quickly, bake in about 20 minutes, including her famed Ren de Saba chocolate cake, not nearly as hard as its inclusion on restaurant menus might have led you to believe. It's a perfect way to put Bob's Red Mill super fine, unbleached cake flour to good use. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products like cake flour. While the headlines remain quite focused on the horrible actions Harvey Weinstein is accused of, among others, it does feel like the noise and the outing of similar abuses in the food world have quieted down. However, I do think the difficult work of self-examination towards change is carrying on. So, Erin, with, with your focus, as you were just describing on helping women succeed and connect in the workplace, what's your perspective about the state of progress in the food world with Me Too? Um, you know, I think that there is a lot of I guess what I've been seeing and hearing is a lot of conversation happening, um, you know, in private, in smaller groups, amongst people, as as women in particular, women in food are trying to negotiate what this means for them personally, as an employee, as a business owner, as a leader within the business. Um, I have been um, working with... um, Elizabeth Meltz, uh, who's the director of sustainability over at Italy and formerly of the Batali Bastianich group over the course of the last five months with a small cohort of other women to create um, and hold a little bit of an organizing space for women in New York City who are in the hospitality space. So we've been convening on roughly a monthly basis. And we, you know, we usually have around 30, 35 ish people who come together and we're really kind of spitballing around what, uh, like what's happening, who's responding, how we're responding, what people are, are, are thinking and feeling. And I was really struck in, in one of our most recent meetings, um, just, uh, around, you know, when you ask people like, Oh, why are you taking time out of your day to show up at something like this? A real feeling that like, I don't want this conversation to end with a change of the news cycle. And so, you know, in a way that feels very exciting to me, I feel like uh, there is an insistence uh, amongst women that um, things be actionable. One of the things I find challenging about working with women uh, in hospitality and people in hospitality in general is like it's a real culture of doers and there's a real... um, you know, mindset to the profession that uh, 
values, being able to like act and problem solve and work in a very kind of immediate way. And I think we are not as good at um, very kind of reflection, generative thinking, um, really kind of taking the big step back. I know in some of the initial meetings, there's a real kind of outcry to like, we need to do something and today and fast. And I'm like, okay, but what? And there's something. And and so you've seen like a variety of uh, groups kind of organize and, and put together initiatives or focuses. And I think those are all great. I think, you know, um, it's, it's important to have a lot of different kind of voices at all different levels kind of um, throwing out or offering up kind of solutions or actions. And um, we well, have been the base of it, right, is culture change. And that unfortunately, there's been this both maybe patriarchal, but certainly just harsh culture in, in particularly in, in the food world and particularly in restaurant kitchens and, and professional kitchens, that this is not going to change unless that culture starts to be reevaluated by everyone who participates in it. And that's a huge thing to do because it's been perpetuated for decades. Yeah. And a lot of it is just really baked in. And I feel really grateful. Um, we got connected through a woman named Erica Dorn, who is um, one of the co-founders of the Good Works Institute, to another woman named Skylar Brown, who runs a kind of process consulting business that looks a lot at how do we build um, leadership and movements using more of a, a feminine energy. And I think that's been a really uh, amazing resource for this group. And I think for myself personally, as, as we've been meeting, to just take a step back and recognize that just the fact that um, we exist, that these conversations are happening, you know, represents a shift, but also the way that we approach affecting change is how we're shaping the the culture that we want to see and be a part of and to be and to get comfortable with kind of taking the time to to do that and recognizing that there is some like unlearning um, that needs to to happen and that ultimately there's going to be periods where things feel uh, awkward or uncomfortable or, you know, I think most often just like slower than we want. Well, yeah, I mean, cer certainly taking down the perpetrators is is an important step. But if all you do is identify bad apples, call them to the carpet, perp walk them and say they're fired or out of whatever they're part of, that inherently that holds people accountable, but it doesn't hold the whole culture accountable or actually do anything to 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 change what's perpetuated those situations from from occurring. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I guess I feel like the, you know, change has to start on a, on an individual level too. And I think it can be scary. I know it has been for me to just even spend some time confronting the ways in which I've been. And I think a lot of women feel this way where you've been a, uh, kind of, victim of this space, you've been a perpetrator of this space, you've been um, an enabler of this space. And also just really keeping front of mind that like, women are not a monolith, and we don't share the same opinions, and we haven't had the same experiences, and we don't want the same things. And I think too, it's been particularly interesting to uh, 
just kind of like listen and absorb and reflect on some of the conversations that have been happening in these female spaces um, between women of, of differing generations and, and how um, expectations uh, or even desires for how things might look can, can really run the gamut. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's complicated and um, there's not, you know, kind of one, one path or one way forward. And, and so I think too, it's like, how do you um, hold space to build that kind of like understanding and like recognizing like where, even like, you know, where your actions need to be adjusted or where you're reacting um, kind of based on this, you know, kind of baked in uh, uh, mechanisms of like decision-making and authority and organization. And, um, you know, some days I'm just like, I don't want to do all that. I just want it to be like, I want to, you know, I want it to be like, you know, uh, cooking a really great, you know, piece of steak or roasting a vegetable perfectly where I'm like, I know how to do that. You know, I'm good at but do you it. Think there, you know? Do you think there's really no turning back, though, now? Do you think that now the, the, the cat is out of the bag, if you will, that it could be as simple as people saying, we've all agreed, or not all of us, but most of us have agreed this isn't acceptable. And once there's a baseline view of I'm not going to turn the other way or I'm going to call someone out when I see something that I think is either abusive or inappropriate. And now I feel collectively empowered culturally to do that, that that is inherent and and that that's happening and that the actual danger is only about letting people not feel that way and sliding back. You know, here, I guess I would look to, um, you know, past social movements where big, you know, leaps have occurred and thinking in particular about the civil rights movement and how um, amazing it must have felt to be kind of at the forefront of, of that movement and the kind of, you know, coming out of, of, of racial bias and then this idea that I think emerged uh, in particular for, you know, people who are not people of color that, okay, you know, you know, that, that problem, you know, has been solved and, and, you know, fast forward to the time we're living in now and you're seeing this kind of emergence of like new information for some of us that, you know, feels, um, you know, surprising, shocking even about the ways that this, the like kind of systematic oppression of people of color uh, has only did not, you know, not only did not go away, as a result of the kind of advances of the civil rights movement, but in some ways, um, you know, went underground or, you know, transformed into uh, harder to point your finger at and say, hey, that's wrong kind of ways. Only, so, only to reveal by uh, tweeting at a late night hour where your true <laughs> thoughts might be, uh, yeah. be uh, shown. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, you know, I do think like, is it simple? Like, you know, yes and no. I think like any, any change, it, uh, it requires vigilance. I think, you know, I do very much believe that, you know, we are, we do bend towards justice, but I think that, you know, is, it's a, it's a lifetime of work. I anticipate it to be a lifetime of work, you know, personally. And, 
some days that feels like fine. And some days I'm like, that is some bullshit. Uh, but <laughs> well, I know. think with everything hard, everyone <laughs> needs a break from it. Yeah. And, and no one can, can, I, I think human beings need opportunities for levity and, and to, 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 uh, let themselves have fun and not feel the weight of the world every single hour of the day. Which is why it can be so wonderful to work in food. And I feel like I'm constantly advocating for like having more parties. I'm like, let's just have a party guys. Like, let's just get together and like do something fun or like make a delicious cake or, you know, um, I think that, that like kind of celebratory Bacchanal is something that, uh, people in food and women in food in particular are really good at. And I think there is some fear and I know there's fear that's like comes up in conversations I've been having that, you know, there is something in this moon that's going to put a damper on that kind of like revelry and pleasure. And I'm like, no, we like that too. Um, and, and, and so kind of balancing out, yeah, the kind of hard well, that, Yeah, and that male phobia of like, oh, I can't say anything funny in a room and, yeah. you know, I can't have a good time at a party anymore. Yep. And, you know, I guess my male reaction is if you couldn't have a good time at a party without groping people, then <laughs> then you really needed help already. Yeah, so. yeah. Then like, I mean, you're, you're, you're just going to have to like find another way, bro. <laughs> like. I well, I guess I, I guess the alternative is you could have a pre-advertised groping party for people who do enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, it's full consent and then it's on. Yeah, man. Bring on the groping. Gropers unite. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure there's a movement you know, for it I support it. So. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about grout consulting. So is that where you have parties and make cakes and stuff? Or wh- what is that about? <laughs> oh, man. Not yet, unfortunately. Um, so grout is... Um, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a small business that I started with my partner, Matt McFarlane. And it was funny. We were talking about this the other day. He's like, you know, grout is the space where I get to kind of think about, um, big problems. And grout is a space where I get to work with Matt or Matt gets to work with me. And grout is a space where I get to, uh, you know, envision the world that I want to be a part of shaping. And I think like many new businesses uh, over the course of the last like six, seven months, we've, we've done, you know, there's been a lot of kind of trial and error and soul searching and like, what is this about? And if we're, we're trying to introduce this kind of new paradigm into the world of work, will anyone even be interested? And then like, how will you get paid for it? And so I think currently what feels really exciting to me is we have, uh, we're kind of coming to a point where, um, we're going to have like a real tool in hand that we'll be able to, um, interact with and actually show people. We've spent the last six months thinking a lot about how do you foster, um, cooperation and collaboration amongst individuals and amongst groups towards kind of pro-social or good ends. And are there mechanisms that can support that work, um, you know, in in particular in spaces where it can be challenging? And so we have been working with a really talented team and looking at some new technology, particularly the blockchain and smart contracts to think about ways to um, operate in a slightly more decentralized fashion and also um, doing a better job of making use of existing resources and empowering people at all levels to um, not only contribute, but also be like recognized for their contributions. So we have, uh, we're, we're kind of 
developing a uh, software platform that we're really looking forward to testing out. And, and so the other piece of work aside from that design has been liaising with individuals or organizations that might make good um, use cases as we go through the first kind of beta rounds of testing. So we've been... Yeah, like who would, what sort of, is this for the the food world or is it could be any industry? Who would be the, like a target kind of end user for this new software? Yeah, really any industry. So I think, um, you know, within the food world, um, we've thought, we've had some interesting conversations around um, illegal fishing and like how do you, coordinate uh, communication and response to um, illegal fishing. And you can kind of extrapolate that to a broader understanding of like where food is coming from and and kind of uh, fraud or animal welfare or workplace um, violations that people might want to be aware of on the consumer end and that also have an impact um, on the supply chain. We uh, have been talking a lot with a the Hudson Valley Current. Um, it's a group up in the Hudson Valley who have developed a local currency to help support um, small businesses and keeping uh, funds and resources within a community and looking at like alternative mechanisms to grow uh, value outside the, the U.S. dollar and, and exchange of resources. And so they're doing some really innovative Stuff looking wow, at. that's pretty amazing. So like a whole Hudson Valley specific, and, and you're talking about Hudson Valley, New York State yep. um, yeah. economy. Exactly. You know, and it's not in place of the dollar. You know, the current is, is pegged to the dollar. It's it's a it's an alternative. So it might be a piece of certain businesses or um, uh, really flourish in particular um, uh, sectors, but also... There's some really interesting opportunities, I think, from a, like municipal level to encourage people towards behaviors that we know are good for us. So uh, how do you influence like health outcomes or uh, environmental income outcomes so you can kind of create mechanisms to incentivize people to behave in particular ways that are, you know, uh, assumed to be in their best interest or the best interest of, of the planet or the community at large. Um, also look- so you're, are you sort of looking at ways that it maybe monetizes the wrong word, but that you actually value is created for an individual or an organization or a company by doing something good because there's an inherent benefit to doing that? Yeah. How do you how do you kind of one uh, keep track of and make transparent those activities and and to so there's like you're thinking about like push pull mechanisms, right? So how are you pushing people towards good behavior or pulling them towards be- good behavior? And and how does that information get tracked and who has access to seeing that? And also, um, I think you, I really can't emphasize enough the decentralized nature of blockchain means that in many cases, you don't need to have a centralized authority figure to, uh, to okay everything or be in charge of everything. And I think that moving away from that type of centralization can feel, I know it does for me, like often feel very like uncomfortable or unknown. You know, I'm like, wait, if no one's in charge, like what will happen? Um, And I think there's like something exciting about. um, Empowering people to feel like they're in charge and that they own it. Yeah. And and also in doing that in a way that it's like transparent and open and to the public and, and thinking a lot, um, 
I'm thinking a lot about kind of an, cultivating an opt-in mentality. So one of the things that I think is interesting about Ladies' Night or about this Women in Hospitality group that I've been co-organizing with is, you know, there's people are opting in. You know, they are choosing to show up to uh, dedicate their like their their space. You know, their time, their resources, their ideas, um, their man hours, um, and and there's there's no one, you know, I, you know, I'm not out there like, hey, you really got to come, man. Like, uh, it's there. It's like <laughs> people it's are there. voluntarily coming without bribes or. Incentive. Yeah, it's, it's like it's there if you want to be a part of it, you know, and I feel like that was like a big conversation I was having a lot um, during my time at radio where oftentimes people would be like, hey, man, I really want to be a part of this. How do I be a part of it? And. You know, I found that a little confusing because I'm like, you just be a part of it. You know, you you show up, you you come to things, you offer ideas, you like participate. And, uh, you know, I think in, in like November of 2016, folks were very energized to kind of like volunteer, to give back, to advocate, to take a stand. And I had a lot of conversations with people where they're like, oh, what's like the most perfect way to do that? And I'm like forget about the most perfect way. I'm like, go with the easiest way, go with the most fun way, like start like simple. And, 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 you know, it's like opt in, like you don't like, have yeah, to be Yeah, no, here. it's still amazing to be having conversations after all that's gone on in the world of the last two years about voting. And people still say things like, oh yeah, I don't really think my vote matters or why bother doing it when it's, to me, it's so clear that that a vote is a precious thing that not everyone in the world gets. And if you're fed up or unhappy with what's happened, that's your power. And it's so easy that it, but the fact that it's still something that outside of the moment of impact, if you will, people can become indifferent about is, is kind of shocking to me. Yeah. I have a hard time um, entertaining those conversations, which why, you know, which is why I'm glad that there's so many people working specifically on those issues. I mean, I think that's the other thing too. It's like, they're not all like, you know, any one individual's problem to solve and we all have kind of a role to play. And again, kind of coming back to that pleasure component, um, I think people have this idea that service work or volunteering has to be this thing that is like kind of a little like hard and you're like, Ooh, you know, I'm out there, I'm doing my volunteering. And I'm like, no man, find the thing that is like fun and easy, like do that. Then there's like lots of, there's just like, I, I don't know, I guess I just see those types of opportunities, uh, all around me and, and it's regenerative, um, on a, on a personal level. And, and like, you know, you, it's okay to expect there to be kind of like a, a reciprocal relationship to those, those pieces. And, you know, there's lots of work to do. So it kind of doesn't matter what you pick. Well, I think that's a great, I'm, I'm going to go to our break there and say, you know, fun and easy and passionate. Those were all things Julia advocated for and make a lot of sense, which is you you don't have to, to climb the mountain to start. You just have to pick the thing that, that you're motivated to do and get going. And that, that, that's enough. So okay. we're going to be right back. And after the break, Erin is going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. 
You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O. It is hardcore. So pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meet in 3, available on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Erin, what's your Julia moment? So, uh, you know, I definitely uh, grew up and came into cooking with an awareness of uh, Julia Child, but in this very kind of distant celebrity way, you know, I, I, I didn't ever meet Julia. I hadn't, um, you know, really consumed her cookbooks, uh, seen her shows. And I found myself in my, you know, first cooking job, uh, working for Peter Hoffman in the back of Savoy down in Soho. And my sous chef at the time, Howard Kalashnikov, um, was definitely a Francophile and, um, you know, taught me so many kind of like words and techniques and ideas. And he was a real stickler about, you know, learning how to make the perfect French omelet and um, really felt like this super simple dish um, was a way to really distill everything you needed to know about a cook and, and how they worked and their skill level and so when he put that on the menu, it was not on a station that I, I worked at because uh, I was like pretty early in my cooking career. And I would practice um, at home uh, try, trying to make these uh, omelets. And I think that, that was really my first introduction to Julia was literally via YouTube videos of her kind of talking through um, the making of a French omelet and watching those. And kind of learning from her. And then I think in the way that many people do, falling into this kind of internet black hole of watching kind of video to video and being kind of struck by this this woman who, you know, had always been kind of a, you know, 60-year-old lady in my head, like seeing her kind of come al- alive in this like series of, of YouTube clips. And I was so struck by um, how funny and and fun her her approach was and I think that there was like something about this person who I knew was like a really big deal and then just kind of seeing um how chill she was um and and it gave me I feel like this real permission to um to to have fun and to to make mistakes and also to recognize that like you know it didn't have to be this like super serious proper thing you know and definitely kind of grew up being very much like a rule follower and technique and process and wanting to do it very perfectly. And I think early in my cooking career, I was really struggling um, 
you know, there's a big gap in your skill set and what you're trying to do and what you know is like the right way to kind of be um, like professional in a kitchen. And so there is something, I guess, super empowering about um, just a simple reminder that like, you know, it doesn't have to be that serious and you can like make a French omelet just as well with kind of joy and humor as you can with like a um, kind of super formal and strict approach. And, And so then the French omelet became kind of like my kind of calling card in, in conversation when people were, you know, sharing, uh, different skills I had, I was, that was always my throw down. I'm like, yeah, but can you make a perfect French omelet? Cause I can. And, uh, well, I think Julia would love that <laughs> because I, I do think in cooking amongst, um, particularly aficionados of the, the French cooking system, which is you, you can't really call yourself a cook or a chef if you don't start with perfecting the omelet first. So I think Julia would, it would have admired both your, um, interest in doing that and the outcomes. So thanks yeah. very much for sharing that. And I think actually Howard still does that. He is uh, the uh, the chef de cuisine at Gramercy Tavern now. And I've heard from other cooks in his kitchen that that is still a kind of go-to kind of cook-to-cook um, show-and-tell, if you will. So... Well, thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. I think everyone can think about perfecting their omelet technique. And if they haven't started, it all starts with just breaking a leg. Uh, sorry, not a leg, an egg. So thanks very much for joining us, Aaron. Thank you, Todd. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us by email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our handle's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. We're also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. If you want to learn more about Aaron's work, check out groutprojects.com. It's G R O U T, and be kind, be fierce.com. It's all one word. The next Ladies' Night event is on June 10th, and you can purchase tickets on the Be Kind, Be Fierce website. If you want to follow Erin on Twitter and Instagram, her handle is at Erin underscore Fairbanks. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover us. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Remember, we're now on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, so downloads will be available soon after, including now on Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.